Okay, welcome back to Firewall. As usual, I'm your host, Bradley Tusk, and as usual for a Tuesday episode, with me is our friend and producer, Hugo Lindgren. Hugo, how you doing? Good morning, Bradley. So we are going to do uh, a little bit on top here about the EU legislation, tech legislation, mm-hmm. and then we're going to do kind of a lightning round with a whole bunch of questions on a whole range of subjects. But I want to s- focus in first on the tech legislation. I'm quoting from the Financial Times here. It says, this legislation would target companies that have a market capitalization of at least $75 billion and run one core platform service, such as a social network or a web browser. It would force these companies to, quote, open up their platforms to competitors, such as by forcing the companies to ensure their services are interoperable. This means, for instance, that users of Facebook's WhatsApp service will be able to send messages directly to communications apps created by smaller rivals. Yeah. So I have three questions for you. Oh, and, and the big piece of it is that these really stiff penalties, should they fail to adhere to the law? Yeah. Three questions. This definitely feels like good politics, anti-big tech, anti-U.S. big tech in Europe. But is this a good way to run the economy? Yeah, I think it's it's actually good public policy and something I wish that we would do here. Okay. Um, you know, right now, I think what, what this law does is it sets out for EU citizens um, you know, basic framework that says, look, your privacy will be more respected. You have to opt into everything. Um, your data is portable, which means that you don't have to sort of just live within the rules of every mega walled garden and just do whatever they want you to do. Right. Um, and it means that the really big platforms like Google and Apple and Facebook um, can't make it basically impossible for anyone to com- compete with them. I mean, I am a tech investor, a tech evangelist, usually the one fighting against tech regulation. And I think all of this would absolutely help the American economy and American tech quite a bit. So if the law passes, um, do you think it'll have an effect on the regulatory environment here? No. No. No one in the U.S. ever gives a shit what happens in Europe. Let me tell you a quick story. So <laughs> in, maybe I told this on the podcast before. In 2016, so there's a big tech conference in Lisbon every year called Collision. Right. It's a big thing. I think Jordan's going this year. Um, and in 2016, I was there. And it happened to be taking place in November. Right. And, you know, I my I had a couple of different things. But the, the big thing I was doing was some guy from The Guardian was interviewing me at the Lisbon Basketball Stadium okay. about the U.S. election the night before, of which I thought I would sort of opine on why Hillary Clinton won and, you know, what her plans <laughs> were for office, right? <laughs> then all of a sudden, you know, that night happens. I don't sleep at all because we're fucking scrambling to figure out all our clients want to know what it means, Right. And so then I show up at this arena, and this guy from The Guardian is such a prick, such a self-righteous <laughs> prick that— Bradley loves newspaper reporters. Yeah, he's yelling at me about Trump, right? And I'm like, look, I didn't vote for the guy. Right? I maxed out Hillary Clinton. I supported her. Um, what is going on? Wait, and he was on. sort of blaming you? like Just like, as the American sitting there in the stage. Right, yeah. okay. And, and finally said to me, well, what do you think this means for European perception of the United States? And I said— Look, Frank, or whatever his name was, um, as you saw from this election, Americans don't agree on very much. We, we fight about a lot of stuff. But let me say one thing we all agree on. No one gives a shit what Europe thinks about anything. Well, very Trumpian point of view, I hate to say. Yeah. I, you know what? The Americans in the crowd cheered and everyone else kind of booed. But it was like <laughs> did, 50, you have, did you have to leave the country really quickly? Uh, my flight happened to be right after that, so oh, it, wor- good, it worked out well. So anyway, point is, no, it will have no impact here whatsoever. But... Um, they're also looking at another law called the digital – the one you described as the Digital Marketing Act. This right. is the Digital Services Act. is another one, which is the equivalent of – we've talked a lot about this podcast – repealing in the U.S. Section 230, which right, protects right. platforms like Facebook and Twitter from liability based on the, the content that the users post. Um, if the EU were to go ahead and do that as well, and I hope that they do, what they're really doing is putting in place 
a structure for privacy, for portability, for antitrust, um, and for liability that not only makes sense for Internet 2.0, but as we've talked a lot about in this podcast, it really needs to be the building blocks for how we regulate Web3. Right. And so you, obviously Americans in general don't give a shit about what happens in Europe. That's your point. But does this give an opportunity for lobbyists, for strategists, for people like you to be like, hey, these are really smart things, give yeah, you some momentum? So, so, to sort like, of. But, you know, I, th- I think in a weird way, the more the EU does it, the more that the Republicans inherently don't like it. Right? right. So, for example, you do see some bipartisan activity around these issues in Congress. A, a bill passed out of the ju- Judiciary Subcommittee a couple months ago that had bipartisan support. I think both the chair and the ranking member both voted for it. So, you know, this is one of those issues where uh, one thing Americans are united on beyond not caring what Europe thinks is they hate Facebook. Right. They use it, but they hate it. Right. Um, and politicians especially hate Facebook. Do you hate Facebook? I have never, ever had a Facebook account. Okay. Um, the dog has one because when Lyle got an Oculus, Facebook owns Oculus, and we had to set up a Facebook account to use it. Right. So we set one up for Sam. Um, but, yeah, I don't like the impact that Instagram has had on my daughter. I, right. I think it has been a, a negative impact, and I think Facebook does absolutely nothing whatsoever to try to avert the harms despite everything they know because all they care about is profits, which is why this law in the EU is necessary. Speculative question on this issue. If a law like this had been passed in the 1950s on U.S. automakers, um, you know, at a time when like GM was like literally the dom, I mean, it was the Facebook of its yeah. of its time. Do you think the auto industry would have been more competitive in the U.S.? Yes, I don't. I don't know that we totally fall apart, and Japanese imports sort of completely overtake the U.S. Um, and I think the Teslas of the world, in a way, come about a little sooner, right? right. Because so, so, let me give you the analogy right now with Facebook or Google or Apple, whatever it is. I'm an early stage tech investor. People come to me with basically ideas, right? right? They're not coming to me with a full-fledged product most of the time. And whenever they're in a space that would compete with Apple, Facebook, Microsoft, Google, whatever it is, I can never do the deal because there's no way to say, well, even if you're on the right track, they're just going to crush you, right? Well, they could also acquire you, they right? They could, but you know, those aren't the outcome. We're not... M&A outcomes for us are usually not the outcome we're looking for. We're looking for at least a 10x on every deal. Right. Um, they're not going to typically – sometimes they do, but they're typically not going to pay 10x. So, um, yeah, but as a result, we are not able to help innovation in those sectors flourish because of the monopolistic practices of those big companies. And I think what the EU is doing in terms of ensuring more – competition by requiring uh, portability on the platforms, by allowing uh, other apps to compete in the App Store, by not allowing Google to sort of completely prioritize Android over other platforms. Um, All of that will lead to more competition, which ultimately leads to more innovation. Okay. Um, We're going to obviously return to this subject in the future podcast because it's going to be a moving story. But I have 13 questions that I wrote out that are going to cover a lot of stuff. Okay. Okay. So I have, tw- I have 23 minutes. You have 23 minutes? Good. Well, I think the listeners maybe have less than that. Okay. So um, uh, here we go. Uh, during his speech last week on Russia's invasion of Ukraine, President Biden went off script and made it sound as if the U.S. were working towards regime change in Russia. In all the time you worked for politicians, do you remember when they diverted from the plan like this? And did it ever work out for the best? <laughs> um, typically speaking, you know, diverting from the plan means that the politician doesn't do what the advisors and consultants right, right, told them to right, do, right? right? And to a certain extent, I understand the perspective of the politician because they're like, fuck you guys. I'm the one that got here. Right. You know, you give me advice, but I'm the one taking all the punches in the front line. Right. I'll say what I want, and I don't blame that at all. Um, look, 
uh, things that I've worked on, even you know, New York City, State of Illinois, Chuck Schumer, whatever it is, none of them are nearly as important as what Biden was talking about yesterday in terms right. of re- regime change during an active war. Right. Um, my guess is that there has been some conversations about it because it got into his head. He blurted it out. He obviously wasn't supposed to. The White House walk, had to walk it back right away. But if you said to me, are there forces in Russia conspiring to assassinate or get rid of Putin? Are the oligarchs trying to figure out how to do it because they've lost tens of billions of dollars at this point? And is it possible the U.S. has some awareness of this or maybe some cooperation? Sure. Seems possible to me. Okay, but you're... You, Okay, do you do you think what he said and what he did was just like basically fundamentally a bad thing, or you're sort of giving him the benefit of the doubt? What do you? No, what are you, what are you saying? I mean, I think look, he is not the best guy sticking talking points, but that's part of his charm and part of why is we. Is it charming? Yeah, I think Americans overall find him. Yeah, he's likable. If he weren't likable, he wouldn't have won, right? Right. So. Um, not that we necessarily want a president who can't stick to the talking points, but overall, it seems to me that this is less about Biden screwing up as it is about his staff not realizing, look, if you're going to put something in his head, there's a pretty decent shot it's going to come out at a press conference. Okay. Question number two. What did you learn by attending the U.S. Snowmobile Championship? Uh, it was awesome. Okay. So um, That's not a learning experience. No, so. no. So uh, I'll give a little context. So okay. the kids and I were in Jackson Hole this week for some skiing, and my friend Chris moved there a couple of years ago. And one day he said, you know what, if you guys want to change your pace, the World Snowmobiling Championship in the Uphill Climb Division, just to Uphill be clear, Climb Division, okay. Um, it's taking place at, uh, at the, so there's Jackson Hole, the mountain, but this right. is called Snow King, which is kind of where the locals ski. Okay. Um, it's taking place at Snow King. And so one day we quit skiing early and went over to this thing. And, you know, for the Super Bowl of snowmobiling, it was pretty pretty calm. We just walked right in, no right. tickets, no money, no nothing. Um, but there was probably a couple hundred people there. And, you know, it was cool in that you watch the snowmobile go from the ground where you are all the way up to the top of the mountain. Um, and I don't have any ability to say, oh, this one went faster than that one, or <laughs> this one did better than that one, nor could you even really see at the very top anyway what was happening. Um, but I, what I learned is snowmobiling has its own subculture, just like everything else, and it's kind of a mix of like biker culture, hipster culture, skier culture, kind of all combined Stoner into one. culture in there or no? Nah, you didn't see. Uh, the, the crowd was very much like a Sturgis, Harley, you know, kind of crowd, right? right? Like I am pretty sure that my friend Rob, who's with me and I, were the only people there who voted for Biden. Right. right. You know, right. the only Biden's things you saw were people wearing shirts that said, fuck Biden. Right. <laughs> um, so on one hand, it was a very Trumpian type experience. But at the same time, you know, you're right. The ski culture is, is definitely different. And so it, it was cool. What I would say is if you were looking to attend the world championships of something and something like a Super Bowl ticket or a World Series ticket seems prohibitively expensive, right. um, go to something like you this. You can definitely afford this. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Mayor Adams revoked the New York City vaccine requirement, which allows uh, New York City baseball players, other athletes, um, Kyrie Irving of the uh, of the Brooklyn Nets, to play home games in, in New York City, which um, somewhat contradicts the point you made in last week's episode that sticking up for the local sports team is no longer good politics. Yeah. Well, do you I, stand I, by that I analysis? Do. Okay. I do. I think Adams, in some ways, actually inadvertently reinforced that analysis because if you look at the reaction to what he did. It wasn't like, oh, thank you, now the Nets have a better chance of winning or now Aaron Judge can play. It mm-hmm. was, how dare you create a double standard where these handful of you know incredibly wealthy athletes don't have to be vaccinated to right. do their jobs, and everybody else does, including 
New York City employees who have lost their jobs, right, because they refuse to get vaccinated. And so I think Adams took a real beating from it. Um, and I think it only proved the underlying point, which is that the public does not want their politicians to prioritize sports teams and their billionaire owners ahead of regular people. The Chinese company Shine is now the largest fashion retailer in the United States, and it has zero physical stores. Um, is there a defensible reason for other fashion retailers to hold on to their physical stores? <sighs> You know, look, some of them are loss leaders where you have to be on Fifth Avenue and you have to be on Rodeo Drive and wherever else um, just to kind of build the brand and the image that you want. Um, some of them probably have loyal customer bases. Like, so there, there are things. Do you, do you think there's new ways to build those, like, those brands? Maybe. I mean, I think in a weird way, that's where sort of, again, like the metaverse comes back in. So right now, I hate the shop. Other than right. books, I don't like the shop. So I buy all my clothes online. Right. A third of them are mistakes. Either they don't fit me right or they don't look good or whatever it is. Um, and you give them away. I give them away. So in, the smart thing for me to do would actually be to take the time to go to a store and not sort of have you know a third of my purchases effectively be a waste. Right. So um, while I'm too impatient to do that, I think there are a lot of people who do want to try things on. By the way, especially shoes. I, I know that Zappos is huge and all those things are huge. But like... Lyle convinced me to buy a pair of Yeezys uh, on StockX a couple of weeks ago because he's like obsessed. He's become a total sneakerhead. Yeah. And I got my size 11. And guess what? They didn't fit at all. Uh, you should give them to me. See if I gave them to me. Lyle so when he grows into them. Oh, my God. Come on, Brad. What's that shoe are you? What's that? 11. They'd be too small then. Oh, really? My, I mean, I, they size small for yeah, shoes? Yeah. My wow, toes that's... were like right at the end. It was uncomfortable. Um, BuzzFeed News melted down last week. Um, I know you're generally bearish about the media industry, but BuzzFeed was at least attempting to compete with the New York Times. Um, how do you think the media will improve if it's so hard to compete with the established players? Um, I don't know that it will improve. I think that at least what BuzzFeed's uh, near collapse last week tells us is just because uh, a venture capitalist or some pundit tells you that the new model is the future doesn't mean that it is, right? So when you go back and you look at BuzzFeed and Vox and Vice and all of these media companies that have these tremendous valuations, if your basic common sense question was, I don't get it, how are they going to make enough money to justify it? Turns out your initial skepticism was right. So generally speaking, and this isn't just true for media companies, when, when you look at a tech company and you can't rationally understand why it's going to make money and your only answer is smarter people than me like it so they must know better than I do, they don't. Okay. What would convince you to start reading the New York Times again? If they started running, uh, I'd say they'd have to fire a lot of the people at the top, including okay. the editor pretty much the entire editorial board. Okay. Um, they'd have to You want the editorial board out? I want everyone who created the culture of in unwillingness and intolerance of any other views, kind of culminating with that Tom Cotton debacle on the op-ed page, right. to be fired. Right. Um, I think that you need to replace Salzberger with someone with a much stronger hand who's not terrified of his own newsroom, okay. uh, not terrified of being criticized on Twitter. Um, and, you know, I, I think you have to restore a culture where you say to reporters, your job is to get the facts and to provide them in the most objective way possible to the readers the readers will then decide how they feel about it. If they want to read our analysis or our opinion pages, they can. Um, but like what, some fucking millennial has you know views about something and that it gets totally incorporated into, into the substance of the story, now I have to accept that as fact because What if it turns out that's a bad business though, right? 
I understand so, why the New York Times is doing what they're doing, and right. from a pure shareholder perspective, what they're doing is absolutely right. By reverting to a business model of pure polarization and intolerance, they've made a lot more money. So if I were a shareholder in the Times, I would say keep going. Your question to me was what would it take for me to read the Times, and it would require completely redoing both their approach and business model. Um, Uber announced a deal last week that will enable you to use your Uber app to summon yellow cabs in New York yeah. City. As listeners know, you played a critical role in helping Uber defeat the taxi lobby. Now it seems to have come full circle. Is this a good deal for both parties? You know, look, Uber stock went up upon the announcement, and that, that makes sense. But to me, it's also very indicative of the underlying vision really kind of failing, right? Which was the underlying vision was we are going to be so much better than taxi that all the customers are going to flock to us, all the drivers are going to flock to us, um, and there won't be a need for taxi simply because you know we're such a better service. Right. By pivoting and saying we're going to put taxis on our platform, what they're admitting is, one, maybe there's not that much of a difference between at least an UberX and a yellow cab. Two, um, Uber has a very hard time attracting and retaining drivers because it is a really tough job and they don't have any benefits. Um, and as a result, um, they don't have uh, enough drivers to meet demand. So I don't know when the last time is you ordered an Uber, but it always takes longer than they say it will. And what they say it will take always longer than it was a couple of years ago. So I, I think to a certain extent, it's an act of desperation on Uber's part. It, it's still uh, a good move in the sense that it'll bring more people onto their platform. But I think it's, if I were still an investor in Uber, I'd be raising the question of, is this kind of ride-hailing, sharing model in the way that you're doing it still viable? I will say when we were in London over spring break, uh, Uber was fantastic there. Uh, yeah. Like we got a we got a car to the airport at you know five thirty in the morning. I think it was one minute. It was incredible. Yeah. It, like worked great. Um, can you uh, recall a recent example of internet advertising influencing a purchasing decision of yours? Probably not on product. Here's the thing. So my internet usage is actually very limited in the sense of. I only go on a handful. I go to a handful of sites to just read nonsense about sports. Right. Right. And then I get my news from a handful of sites. And then if I'm doing research about something, I'll go online and Google it and right. kind of dig into it. But usually in all those mindsets, I'm not so much in a in a buying mood. Right. You're not um, on Instagram flipping through pictures of your friends. I don't think so. But, you know, once in a while, um, could some product like, hey, here's this new kind of poop bag for the dogs that it's a lot easier to open up. I have a real problem opening poop bags uh, due to my lack of coordination. <laughs> like, uh, yeah, I, I occasionally will go for something like a that. No problem. Um, Do they have training videos if you look those up on YouTube? Uh, I should check that out. Yeah. Uh, or maybe we, you should make one. We had a dog trainer for a little while, and then after about a month, Harper said to me, Lyle and Miriam, who's our, our, house, our babysitter nanny, um, what's the trainer's name? And none of us knew after a month. And she's like, all right, we're not doing these anymore. Like we were just totally, totally disengaged in the process. Oh wait, so the but what does that have to do with the poop bags? The trainer. Maybe she it? would have trained me on how to open. Oh, them I see. Okay, away. I got you. I should have hung in there. Um, At least learned her name. What's the most successful strategy you've employed to limit your children's scream time? Fucking none. I think I said scream um, time. I think yeah, well, that's probably right. Look, I think pre-COVID, we had some decent policies in place, um, but the combination of the pandemic school moving online, and then our kids getting older where their social lives also migrated online. Right. Um, we are really struggling now to sort of impose new rules because if I say to Abigail, get off your phone. It's like, don't talk to your friends. Yeah, you know, that or I'm doing my chemistry homework on it or whatever it is. Right. I, don't, I don't know what the difference is. Um, and Lyle's kind of getting to the same place. So, um, no, we do not. And I suspect that had the pandemic not happened, we'd be in a better place than we are today just because we wouldn't have had the like 
screw it, just just open the floodgates. But right. um, at the same time, I think it would still be a struggle. Uh, we're on question 10. Okay. Is, Put, is Putin insane? Minutes. So I don't think he was insane, right, in the sense of he got to where he is by being probably incredibly ruthless and rational and smart, right? Okay. However, um, as we've seen, absolute power corrupts absolutely. And as Shakespeare wrote about time and time again, uh, when people are in positions of extreme power, sometimes they tend to lose their minds, right? right. Um, is it possible that he has been isolated in such a crazy bubble for so long that he's lost his grip on reality? Yeah, that's definitely possible. Look, the gamble he made was, I'm going to go down in Russian history, not as his vicious dictator, but someone like, you know, Peter the Great, because I recovered our lands right, that were, right. um, and he totally miscalculated on that. And so, and the real question of is he crazy is, is he crazy enough to use nuclear weapons um, to further the same? So far in his hit reign, he has not been, right? Which is why we haven't had uh, any kind of nuclear conflict. Um, I do worry, as, as much as I enjoy seeing his troops lose to the Ukrainians, I do worry that when's that moment where he says, fuck this, and launches a nuke, and then all of a sudden, you know, it's a totally different ballgame. Um, do you ever reread books that you love? And if so, which ones have you reread? No. Never. Um, I don't reread books. I don't. In fact, when we, uh, for the class last year for, for Columbia, um, assigned a couple of books like What Makes Sammy Run and um, Augustus by John Williams. So I reread them because I had signed up to the students. Right. Didn't enjoy it at all. Oh, really? Yeah. For some reason, just like I like reading new fiction or when I look at art, I prefer to go to galleries and see new contemporary stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't really like rereading re or rewatching anything. Um, when you're taking the subway in New York City and you see somebody jumping the turnstile who obviously doesn't need to jump the turnstile but is just doing it, what's your reaction? I don't. Two sides, right? Part of me is like, I, I don't care, right? Like, you know, people do what they want to do, and, um, you know, there are bigger problems in the world than someone jumping a turnstile, right? right. On the flip side, um, I do believe in the broken windows theory. I know that the far left despises it, but I think that fundamentally, when you stop enforcing all the little things, it creates a, a climate of violence and sort of lawlessness that then leads to bigger and bigger crime. So is it a coincidence that we don't prosecute people for fair beating and there seems to be more and more violent crime on the subway? Maybe not. So um, while it doesn't, I don't really, you know, I, I try to only kind of get myself worked up, worked up about what other people do when there's like a really serious impact to it and right. not jumping a turnstile. But, you know, Mayor Adams has talked about kind of a return of, of the broken windows theory, and I, I think he'd be right to do that. Um, what's your favorite Rust Belt city? That's our final question. Favorite Rust Belt city. All right. Let's th since I have a few minutes, let's analyze this one a bit. <laughs> so I've only been to Cleveland once. I was there with you. Yep. We went to a basketball game. Um, I had a good time that day. I don't know that I could have sustained uh, a second. Did you day. go to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? Because I, I know we didn't go together. I know. I did. But. I went to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I went to the Cleveland Museum of Art. Um, yeah, I kind of think I did everything I was to do in Cleveland. Right. Um, I've never been to Pittsburgh, but I'd like to go because the baseball stadium looks incredible, and I'd like to go to the Warhol Museum there. Yeah, Pittsburgh's great. So Pittsburgh would, is sort of my guess. It's also a lot more just charming than Cleveland for sure. Um, Detroit, I, I know that the thing is like, oh, Detroit's coming back. But i got to tell you, every time I go there, I don't really see it, right? I see examples of the government and a few billionaires trying to make it happen by over-subsidizing projects and paying companies to be there or building giant towers or whatever it is. But, you know, uh, a couple of years ago, I, went, I gave a speech there, 
and uh, it was right downtown, right kind of by where the Pistons play. And the site was like, there was like 30, four, 30 under 30. Everyone was too young for me. And so when I was not giving my, I had a couple hours to my speech. I was like, you know, I'm just get the fuck out of here for a little while and just go to a calmer environment. The streets were very calm because nobody was there and nothing was <laughs> happening. So like, I would say no to Detroit. Um, I've never been Buffalo. to- Buffalo? You know, I've only been to Buffalo once with Chuck Schumer a very long time ago, which means all I recall was, you know, whether or not we got the Buffalo News to the press conference or not. <laughs> right. um, but the fact that I've lived most of my life in New York and have spent a little time in yeah. Buffalo probably tells you what you need to know. Any, any others you want to throw out there? No, no I, I mean, those are those are the big ones that I think of. Cleveland, Chicago Buffalo, doesn't count as a Rust Belt. No, city. Rust, I mean, it's it's sort of the king of the Rust Belt, so it doesn't really count. And and obviously you have you have a Saint, lot of familiarity with Saint that Louis. Too. Yeah, St. Louis is kind of Rust Belt. How about Gary, Indiana? You like that? You know, I've been through because it is right yeah. next to Chicago. I think it's, you know, I think even people Gary and Gary, Indiana feel like Gary, Indiana is a pretty rough place. Um, so what I will say about St. Louis, though, is I, I don't love St. Louis either, but um, I like going to Cardinals games. Those fans, are, those fans are so passionate that even though I don't care about the Cardinals one way or the other, um, it's fun to, to watch their excitement. All right, Bradley, until next week. All right, see you. Bye.